We're going to begin our worship this morning, as we always do, with prayer and and, uh, uh, out of uh, worship and respect for our God, we stand together and we join in prayer. Let's all stand. Holy and gracious Father, we come together on this Labor Day weekend uh, as we take a day off from labor to celebrate those who labor in our nation, uh, Father, that uh, every day uh, we know that there are many who are uh, putting their heart and souls into, into their work so that uh, the nation will prosper. We also pray for them, Father, that uh, they would uh, give their hearts and their souls to you and to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray for all those, Father, who have uh, sacrificed over the years that we might be here in this place and enjoy the lives that we have. We pray this day for our nation, for our world. We pray, Father, for uh, a spirit of cooperation. Uh, There are many issues that face uh, not only our nation, but the whole world, people everywhere together. And we pray, Father, that that we would find a way uh, to, uh, to cooperate and to seek the best for each one. Father, we do pray uh, that uh, on this day we would worship you knowing that ultimately the fate of the world is in your hands. And ultimately in your word, Father, you have given us hope. Hope that uh, as your uh, kingdom will one day reign, as a new heaven and a new earth uh, will come down, that, Father, uh, we will all be able uh, to rejoice in your very presence and in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. This day we come to share uh, the cup and the bread, to remember your love for us, that you love the world so much that you sent Jesus to die for us, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but would have everlasting life. And this day, Father, we pray that we would have that assurance of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. Father, this we pray in his holy name, and we sing praise to your name, and amen. Good morning. You please join me in the prayer for guidance. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. I'll be reading from Romans uh, book one, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Romans chapter one, verses one through six and 16 through 17, um, found on page 152 in your pew Bible. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And from verses 16 through 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The word of God for the people of God. 
We're beginning a sermon series over uh, actually the next couple months. I'm going to try to. Sometimes I, I end up replacing a, a sermon on a Sunday because something has come up and I, I feel it's pertinent to, to change. But uh, the eight weeks are going to be around the idea of uh, we are called. What are we called to by God? And today I began with, I think, that essential fundamental call to all Christians, not just pastors, not just preachers, not just evangelists, not just missionaries, but to all Christians. And that is to find a way to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that way may look different for many of us. There will be some common elements, but there are also different ways that people are able to communicate communicate the gospel. So I want to talk about that uh, some this morning. The the scripture was uh, uh, from Romans 1. I, I want to share with you a, another scripture from Romans 10 that deals with sharing the gospel. Uh, uh, the words in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God through Jesus Christ to bring salvation. Now, that's a lot of power if you stop and think about it. That's important in our lives. If the one way to, to truth, to salvation, is Jesus Christ, as he said he was, then the power of this that we have been given uh, the responsibility to share is enormous. And uh, a lot of people uh, carry with them some level of guilt that they did not find a way somehow or they did not find the motivation or or, or just uh, felt insecure about sharing the gospel and someone passed away and now they feel this level of guilt and responsibility. Jesus relieves us of that guilt, uh, but he doesn't relieve us of the responsibility. And we are all still called, uh, whether or not we feel that, uh, that we have the ability, God will provide a way for you to share the gospel. Uh, the, uh, uh, Romans 10, I, I, I like this, this, uh, this passage here. It says, uh, the word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. Now what does that mean? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. And then he says, that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If if you say with your mouth, Jesus is, is, is Lord, if you proclaim that with your mouth and you believe it in your heart, then you will be saved. Now, why is that remarkable? Because it, it doesn't say, uh, Paul doesn't say that salvation isn't far off from you uh, once you've gone on this holy pilgrimage. Once you've uh, uh, gone on your knees up 20 flights of stairs to reach some holy place. Uh, once you've accomplished this to-do list that God has given you, that once you've done that, you will be saved. That's not it. He says, no, salvation is near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. With the power of the mouth to express your faith, with your heart to believe, salvation is yours. And you don't need anything else. You don't uh, need uh, anything uh, on your computer You don't need anything technological. You don't need to watch a specific preacher every Sunday on TV. It's it's within you. God has given you that gift within you. So I I, I thought about this this week, and I thought about this uh, story called the Gospel Blimp. Anybody remember uh, back in 1967, I looked up the exact date. I figured I was somewhere around a teenager. I heard the story of the Gospel Blimp. And a pastor was preparing his sermon. This is a true story, the author of the story. Uh, and it's short. It was about 87 pages. 
when he published the book. But he was working on a sermon one day, and he, this uh, little story started to flow out of him because he was frustrated with the inability of the church to share the gospel with people. What was wrong? We had all these wonderful programs and all these wonderful techniques and, and tools to share the gospel, but somehow people weren't hearing it. People weren't coming to the Lord. And so he sat there and he started to write. Eventually, this sold like 200,000 copies, which in the mid-60s was a pretty remarkable amount because he struck a nerve with people. So it's called The Gospel Blimp, and I watched, there's about a 40-minute movie made in in the 1960s, which is interesting in and of itself, but uh, uh, where this... uh, uh, group from this church. They're, they're an evangelical church. They believe in sharing the gospel, but they're sitting in one of the members' backyards, and they're talking about uh, how they wish that they could somehow get this family next door, this couple, to come to church. That, yeah, they come on Easter, and they come at Christmas time, but if only we could get them to believe in Jesus, enough to commit their lives to him and to the church, and how do we go about that? And, and so they're sitting there, and the people are right next door. They can hear them <laughs> talking about them. I mean, or at least you assume they can. And, and they're talking about this, and then somehow it turns around to, uh, as it always does in churches, you know, committees are a big answer to everything, right? Until you find out after the committee's been around for a year or two that it's not got, it doesn't have any answers. But they decide maybe we have to do something. Maybe we have to come up with an idea where we can reach them. And right then a blimp goes overhead. You know, like one of those Goodyear blimps goes over. And of course they're all looking up at the blimp. It gets their attention immediately. And one of them sort of jokingly says, what if we had a blimp? And one of the other ones says, yeah, we could have like one of those things tied off where the banner goes behind it with the scripture. And he says... You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, you know, he's going on and on and his wife hits him and says, well, it couldn't be that long. He says, yeah, that's, that, we'll deal with that later. And suddenly they're talking about this as if this is something they're going to do. So once they decide, yeah, maybe this is a good idea, they get an investigative committee together to see if it's possible to do it and how it would be done. And eventually uh, uh, things just start to come in. It's the Lord's will, obviously, because somebody tells them about this 200-foot blimp that they could get for, uh, it, you know, it would be very cheap. But now they have to get a group together, a subcommittee, to do fundraising within the committee. And you, you can see how this is going to go. And, and, and the guy who's the head of the whole thing, eventually he, he gives himself the title of uh, uh, commander because he becomes the commander of the blimp and he's up there in that little section as he's riding along and everything. They, uh, uh, they put speakers up on it. So eventually it's not just enough to have that banner going behind that says, uh, you know, you are a sinner or, you know, repent and believe. Uh, they got to have some sort of way to really capture the people's attention because after a while, people aren't even looking up at it. And so they're playing Christian music and they're doing and they're 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 just preaching to the people up there from the blimp. And people are kind of annoyed by that. So after a while, they said, you know, another thing we could do is drop what they called fire bombs from heaven. And they were wrapped up in little red cellophane and they were uh, gospel tracts to tell them about Jesus Christ. Well, the people are really annoyed because their gutters are getting clogged up with these things and it's trash over the yard and people are getting annoyed and, and then one day the blimp accidentally lands on this woman's house and terrifies her. You know, the, the pilot, they fire the pilot, you know, 
it, it just goes on and on like this. And then, and then, uh, finally one day, uh, one of the, uh, committee members, uh, he's getting a little fed up. They've hired a marketing firm for marketing. They're now International Gospel Blimps Incorporated. It's grown into this huge thing. Uh, the guy who's heading it up is convinced by the marketing company that he mo- needs to move into a better community because they'd like to get those richer people to be part of the church because then they can give more money to International Gospel Blimps Incorporated and so forth. So this just goes on. Well, this guy gets, George, he gets a little irritated with the whole thing. He doesn't like the direction all this is going, and uh, he decides to quit. And all of a sudden, he has time. All these committee meetings, planning shrubs around where the blimp lands and all the other things they have to do and attend to, everybody had stopped going to their kids' little league games and and they were uh, just too busy for anything else except the blimp project. Well, he quits. And they're all kind of like, you know, uh, uh, we're better off without George. You know, you get one person in there who doesn't support, you know, it can bring the whole thing down. And then one of them reports that they've seen George with this neighbor who this whole thing had started out because of this couple over here next door who didn't go to church except twice a year. They had noticed that George was hanging around with the guy. He was going down fishing, and you know, the guy probably had beer in his cooler. And who knew George was, who knew George was probably drinking beer now? Oh, poor George. You know, he'd gone off the deep end and everything too. Well, one day, George and his wife invite the board over to their house, and they're sitting in that same backyard where it all started. And the neighbor couple is there with them. And they're there to tell them that they have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that they now believe, and they want to be part of the church. Well, the people are all excited. They get really excited and say, wow, the gospel blimp, it's been three years, and we have our first convert. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in this thing, all these uh, thousands of, of, of uh, hours invested, we have our first convert. But the guy says, no, actually, it wasn't the blimp. Actually, that blimp uh, uh, really irritated me. All the cleaning up I had to do after it went on, uh, middle of the night, blaring speakers and all. Uh, uh, one evening, they were flying the blimp over the, uh, a, a part of the city that was primarily a Polish population, Polish immigrants. And so they were doing the audio in, in Polish. But somehow it got into the TV system, so everybody all over town, all of their favorite shows were now in Polish. Irritated people. They had all kinds of problems with this thing. But they were so excited that the, that the couple had come to Christ and, and, and that the Gospel Blimp uh, project had worked but the guy said no. And like I say, he tells them about all the irritations of it. He said, actually, it was once George quit your committee, I had been inviting him to go fishing for several years, and he never could go. He never had the time, but he went with me, and, well, we became friends, and then he started to share with me why, uh, why his faith in Jesus was so important. And, and you know, after a while, it, I just realized that's what I wanted. You get the message. You don't have to be hit over the head with this thing. But this is, this is the thing I think that uh, irritates me as a pastor sometimes because of all the stuff I get in the mail and by email and online. You see all these things that are the, uh, the sure fix way to evangelize 
your community. And we're about to do the saturate Augustus. There's a bit of, of irony in this as we go around putting things on people's doors, people's doors as if that is the answer. And I'm not opposed to that. I support it. I think it's a good thing. I think it's one way to do it. But Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, in his own uh, way of evangelizing, which you can see like in the Gospel of John chapter, chapter, chapter 4 as he shares with the woman at a well, he had a particular way that he did this. Uh, John Wesley uh, believed that, uh, that the primary thing that you had was people who believed in their heart, that the messenger had to believe in their heart what they were preaching. He said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. I don't care if they've got a degree. I don't care if they've got uh, you know, an ordination paper hanging on their wall. These alone, by themselves, these hundred will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. And then he said to, to them, he said, you have, he says this to the church, you have one business on earth, and that's to save souls. Now, I go to a lot of church things, you know, connectional things, districts and conference things. And the amount of time we spend on the business of saving souls, really small, if at all. Does it ever get talked about? So somewhere along the way, we've lost that direction, uh, and, and we have uh, somehow lost the Jesus way of salvation, which has nothing to do with gimmicks. Uh, imagine this 1967 story, a blimp, if it was told in today's world with the social media and everything else that we have. Again, it's not totally without effect. It's not a bad thing, but it can't be the only thing. And I'm afraid too often what we do is we replace personal evangelization and developing personal connections and relationships with people. We excuse ourselves from it by saying, well, I put, I, I put a poem about Jesus on, on Facebook this week. That's my evangelizing. Jesus, by his own example, I think there are a couple of things here that we can take from Jesus. Number one is the timing of his birth. Notice that Jesus was born in a very non-technology era. Very limited. What could be done? Uh, They had uh, no longer had to write on clay tablets. They actually had ink and parchment. That's about as advanced as it was. So primarily, as Paul says uh, later on in, in Romans 10, he said, how can the people hear unless there's someone to preach to them? And he's not talking about preachers in the He's talking about anybody. Unless someone shares the gospel with them. Because for Paul, in a non-technological age, person-to-person communication was the way they, they, they shared And that is the age that Jesus came into the world. I think God had a message for us in that. He didn't want Jesus to come into an age where he would gather all the disciples around him in the Sermon on the Mountain. He would say, uh, listen, um, uh, Peter and John, you guys are in charge of social media. You guys are in charge of uh, uh, the the website over here, uh, road signage. Um, You know, he he didn't do that but he was able to be person to person, just as he was in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, who he shows great respect for despite the fact she's obviously well away from God's will in terms of her relationships with men. 
despite the fact she's a Samaritan. Jesus shouldn't have been sitting there alone with the woman to begin with. And now he's sitting there alone with a Samaritan woman. And he shares the gospel with her, the good news of who he is. He tells her, you know, anybody who drinks of this water will never thirst again. And she says, give me that water. I want that water. And he goes on and he he talks to her and he reveals to her who he is. And she believes. It's that simple. Jesus sometimes had had to go across the barriers that sometimes keep us from sharing the gospel with other people. We may look at somebody and just say, well, they're too much of a sinner, but we know that God can forgive anyone, and no matter how deep your sins are, God can take care of that person. You know, uh, have you ever heard the term, oh, they would make good church members? You ever hear that term? Yeah. What does that mean? That they can put money in the plate? That they won't embarrass us by the way they dress on Sunday morning? What, what does it mean they would be good church members? Because they have degrees and they're smart and they could probably chair a committee. The, um, I thought back over the years, the people who I have personally brought to Christ. The first ones were back in college when I was dirt poor. I, I had $20 a week that I got from, from working in my dad's store. I'd go all the way from Richmond back to work on Saturdays, get $20, go back, I give half of it to the church. I'm not saying this to make me into a saint, but that's how committed I was at that age. And then the other half went mostly for the transportation back and forth, part of which I will say, until Lydia broke up with me, part of my motivation for going back was to see Lydia each weekend. Okay, so I did have that motivation. So at that time, I didn't have much except... Uh, the opportunity to develop relationships with people. And so I had guys at, at, at school at the University of Richmond. I had some uh, at, the, at the church I started to going to, to working with the youth group and everything. It was just personal relationships. And then when I become a pastor, I find that what I do is I substitute Sunday morning preaching for personal relationships. I'll evangelize people this way, Right? That excuses me from the personal relationship thing. And yet I found along the way that the most effective way that I as a pastor can bring some, the gospel to somebody is developing a personal relationship. A young man who goes down on a mission trip to Mississippi, a young man with a lot of problems in his life. I don't think there's any other way that we could have reached him with the gospel except that him going on that mission trip and being around all these guys uh, who, who are committing themselves to helping these hurricane victims and having the opportunity to all week to talk about our faith with him that, that by the time the mission trip is over, he's ready to confess his faith and to be baptized. And he was baptized when we got back. See, that was relationship evangelism. And it wasn't evangelism in the dirty sense of that word that has all kinds of prejudice against it, but it was evangelism born out of a love and concern for him. Or the couple who uh, lived just down from our parsonage in my first first appointment, and uh, they lived on their Social Security, $700 a month, and they would slaughter a pig every once in a while, and uh, they they would eat off of that pig. But they didn't have much money at all. 
And uh, when I'd invite them to come to church, well, we don't, we, we don't have the clothes. We can't dress right. And I'd talk to them about that, that that really didn't matter. I'll never forget the day that they showed up at church and he was in a suit. See, it mattered to him. It mattered to him. But it was a suit he had been married in 60 pounds before. So it barely, I mean, it was just so tight and ill-fitting, but they were there. I think about how it reached them with just just a personal relationship and, and, and just going and talking and, and visiting them, even though they weren't members of the church, but just showing them some interest. And then I think about the young uh, Chinese man, not Mark, who was here recently, but one back at, at my previous church who came over from China. And because the people in the church, he was fascinated by the church. He was fascinated by everything he heard and everything he saw. And so the family who sponsored him asked if I would come over and share with him the good news of Jesus Christ. And you're kind of like, oh, he's going to have all kinds of rebuttals and what about this and that. And he just listens and then he's, yeah. I want to accept Jesus as my Lord. I want to be baptized. And then he brings his, his mom back, comes to visit that summer after the school year is over. She comes for a month to visit, and she wants to hear the gospel. But she doesn't speak English, so he translates for me, and she's baptized. And she comes to Jesus Christ. So I think back all the times when people actually make a decision for Jesus Christ, and it seems that it comes about through these personal relationships, when you show an interest in them. And other people in this church have done exactly what I was just talking about, what I was doing. But it's so easy to take the easy, lazy way out and to depend upon some program, some technique, evangelism, explosion, saturation evangelism, uh, all those things. The best program I've ever heard was one that simply said what's obvious, and it's what I'm preaching about this morning and what I'm about to end with. It's the one, do you remember? Some of you took this. Walk across the room. (laughs) It was Bill Hybels. He said, the best way to bring the gospel to people is to just walk across the room, introduce yourself, and make a friend. Now, he sold a lot of books saying that very thing. But you know, at the end of the little movie on the Gospel Blimp, you know what's on the screen? It says to share the gospel, and then the words, make a friend, appear. Make a friend. And you know what? If you went back to the first century and you asked Jesus, Jesus, how can I share the good news that you're my Savior? You know what Jesus would say? Make a friend. It doesn't change. So as we go out to make, make uh, disciples, maybe this morning you, were, you thought I might have a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 technique here, step 1, step 2, step 3, you know, how to share the gospel. Make a friend, and they will see the gospel in your life, in your words. Words are important. We can't just say, oh, I'm just going to show it by the way I live. It takes all of that together. the the total person, to create that message that something in you is different, something has changed. You no longer have the fears that you had before. You no longer have the goals that you have before because you have met Jesus Christ. And when people hear that and see that, then their heart begins to change. And then with their mouth, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This morning, we're, we're coming to the communion table, and as we come... And we confess our sins. And we receive 
the words of pardon, the words of assurance that we are pardoned. This is the good news. And the good news is, and I think about this all the time, the good news may be a little bit different for each of us as to that thing in life which Jesus Christ has had the greatest effect upon. And for me, it is fear. I'm a fearful person. I worry about the future. Last night, I had two nightmares. Thank you, God, for the thunder in our open windows because we didn't have the air conditioning on. That thunder was something else around our house. So I had two nightmares. One was I was supposed to fly on the space shuttle. NASA was depending on me, but I couldn't remember which day it was. And no matter how hard I searched my calendars and everything, I couldn't figure out when it was I was supposed to show up for the space shuttle. And the other one was that we had about 20 hives that we had put out on a farm and had completely forgotten about them. Just slipped the mind. And then one day I get a call and we go out there and the bees were all swarming because no one's paid attention, they're too crowded, now they're swarming out and everything and all the neighbors around are running all over the field screaming because the bees are after them. So I'm here having these nightmares. You know why I have that type of nightmares? Because of fear. I have fears, I have worries and and things. Do you know what Jesus' greatest gift to me has been in this life? I know the gift that's waiting for me is far greater. But in this life, it has been that when these fears come upon me, I can pray to God and know that he is there. And he gives me a calm assurance that it's going to be okay. And so we come this morning and we confess to God our weaknesses and our fears and our sins, and he is faithful to forgive us. So I invite you to turn to the invitation uh, in your hymnals on page 12. And together as a body, let's confess. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, and amen. Let us all confess our sins in silence. But our God does not leave us in the darkness of a fallen world. Hear this good news, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And that proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. And amen.